Hello, precious friends. We're in our series that we're calling Foundations of an Empowered Life. And last session, we asked the question, what about sin? So I guess today we could call this session, What About Sin, Part Two. Because last time we saw that the holiness of God reveals our sin. It's like turning on a light to every flaw or blemish that we ever had because God is holy and He can only judge sin. And a part of standing or taking, uh, having awe in the holiness of God is what's going to happen is, is I'm going to see my sin. And so God cannot accommodate sin. He cannot get used to it. He can't overlook it. Sin is what separates us from a holy God. And it was when Jesus became sin for us on the cross that fellowship between the Lord Jesus Christ and his Father God was broken for the first and only time in all of history. Why did that happen? Because Jesus became sin. And in any situation, God cannot fellowship with or approve sin. So any sin, whether it's visible or invisible, or whether it's an action or an attitude or a motivation, it is still a grave offense to God's holy nature. God's first concern is holiness. It's holiness. And in what's, it, because it's what separates us from Him, sin destroys God's creation. And so God wants to destroy whatever is going to destroy what he loves. And he loves his creation. He loves people that he has created. And sometimes, you know, God is said to be angry and show wrath and judgment. And whenever he does, it's a holy act of preservation. It's not because he's just in our minds, wanting his way or trying to demand something of us. It, he's preserving us. A.W. Tozer says that the holiness of God, the wrath of God, and the health of creation are inseparably united. So when God is dealing with our sin, he is trying to keep us healthy. He's trying to keep us alive, not just physically healthy, but healthy in every way. God's wrath is his absolute intolerance of whatever degrades and destroys. So God hates sin like a loving parent hates some deadly disease that could take their child's life. So moms and dads who love their children are going to hate a disease that would threaten his life. God hates sin because of the threats that it is to his children. We've said that God is holy, and we looked at scriptures that say, where even in heaven, even now, they're saying, holy, holy, holy. And so God sees everything through holy eyes. We talk about sometimes looking through rose-tinted glasses. God sees everything through holy eyes. So when sin separates the creation, the people that God loves from him, then he is grieved and he is angry because he is protective of what he has created. God couldn't behold the bondage and death and separation brought on to his beloved world without doing something about it. So what did he do? 
John 3.16, you know it. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him would not perish, but instead have everlasting life. God took all of the sin, think about this. God took all of the sin for all time and placed it on Jesus on the cross. All sin for all time. Christ Jesus took the judgment and paid the wages of sin, which is death. God is waiting and willing to put Christ's death to my account if I see the holiness of God and then see my sin, I see that I'm a sinner, that I could never measure up to that, and I'm going to see that I can accept, you know, I can do one of two things. When I see myself as a sinner, I can accept a, an eternal death separated from God and pay for my own sin, or I can bow before Christ and accept the debt that he has already paid, the death that he suffered on my behalf, and let God put Christ's death to my account. I've got two choices. I can do it, or I can let him do it. So by faith, I can receive the death that Christ died in my place and let God stamp my sin debt with paid in full. Paid in full. Does that not make you appreciate Christ and the message of the gospel? I can come to Christ by faith and faith alone through grace and grace alone and declare that I am a sinner, that Christ has atoned for my sin and God will declare me saved. And when he declares me saved, I'm born again he imparts to me the Holy Spirit and he declares me justified, waiting to be glorified. Justified, waiting to be glorified. Now, in the meantime, between justification and glorification, there is sanctification. It's a long walk in one direction. That's what repentance is. It's sanctification. Sanctification is that process between being born again and going to heaven to spend eternity where I learned to walk in his holiness in this world. Between here and here, I learn to walk like Jesus. Now, sometimes I'm better at it than others. Some people are better at it than others, but it's still the process. And it's the process of sanctification. And so we discussed in a previous lesson that there is positional holiness and there is practical holiness. And God has declared me holy by my faith in Christ. And Christ's holiness has been put to my account. So when God looks at me, he sees Christ's blood having cleansed me from all unrighteousness. My debt on my ledger in heaven, that debt sheet is stamped paid in full because of what? Christ did. 
And so I have the position of holiness as a gift of God. I didn't do anything to reserve it. He made it available. I believed it and received it, and he gave it to me as a gift. I am declared holy. I am declared forgiven. Practical holiness happens. That's positional holiness. Practical holiness happens when I begin to develop attitudes and behaviors and actions that are in keeping with his holiness. And early on, soon after I've been born, just like any young, uh, uh, any newly born baby, I've got a while I've got to start figuring it out. It doesn't just happen all of a sudden, but I learn over a period of time how to walk, how to walk with Christ, how to walk like Christ, how to live in that brokenness where he is nudging me as to what direction I should go in. And I learned to recognize him. I learned to recognize his voice. So let's talk about this life of sanctification between being saved and going to heaven. What does it look like? Well, let's back up for just a minute because when God forgives our sin, it is absolutely permanent forgiveness. It's permanent forgiveness. In spite of all of the permanent forgiveness, in spite of all of the forgiveness, in spite of having been wash clean in spite of having my name written in the Lamb's book of life, in spite of having paid in full, written on my debt in heaven, in spite of all of this merciful generosity from God to all those who repent and embrace Jesus Christ, we are still to continue to confess our sins. Now, Hear me, because there's a, there are a lot of people today who are saying, if you've been saved, you don't have to pay any attention to sin anymore. Just forget it. Just pretend like it never happened. Um, you know, just, just act like. Some people will even say, if you confess your sins, then you're in unbelief because your sins have already been forgiven. Now, let's look at that just a minute, because I want to tell you something. The life of sanctification is a life of confession and repentance. The gospel provides complete forgiveness for all sin for any sinner who comes to Christ. I'm going to say that again. The gospel provides complete forgiveness for all sin for any sinner who embraces the gospel. The forgiveness that God provides is so comprehensive that it removes from the believer all defilement, all shame, all guilt, all punishment forever and replaces it with righteousness and security and eternal reward. That's how complete the sacrifice of Christ is. This is God's gift of forgiveness. And once God grants it to the believer, nothing and no one, hear me, nothing and no one can cause God to change his mind. He's not going to take it back. No one can talk God out of it or make him change his mind or bring an accusation against a believer that's going to cause God to decide to remove his forgiveness. It ain't happening. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 tells us, There is now, therefore, 
no condemnation in those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. If you are in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. Jesus took your judgment. Jesus took your condemnation. God was satisfied with what Jesus did. And God has already rendered his unchangeable verdict, which is forgiven. Declared righteous, justified. If you are a Christian, all of your sins, listen to me. If you are a Christian, all of your sins have been forgiven. All of your sins, past sins, present sins, and future sins. That's how expansive the blood of Christ goes. Understand that God has much more grace than we have sin. And so this is merciful generosity. Does it not make you want to celebrate and praise and glorify the Lord and fall before him and thank him and in your brokenness to let him have your self-will and then to stand in awe of him and to hate sin with him because of the damage that sin has done throughout the ages. Doesn't it make you want to do that? To applaud him? So if Christ has already forgiven all of our sins, why? Is the life of sanctification from being saved to going to heaven? Why is it a life of confession and repentance? Why would I be praying for God to forgive my sins when I know he's already forgiven my sins, past, present, and future? Why would I do that? And that's where some of this teaching is coming from today that says, you don't have to worry about your sin. You've already been forgiven. So just go ahead and do what you want to do. It'll be all right. You're already forgiven if you're in Christ. Well, I want to show you something. From the perspective of God's judgment throne, past, present, and future sins have been forgiven. Believers are forgiven. Forgiven. Past, present, and future sins. Even if they're never confessed. Why? Because I don't do anything to get it. It is a gift, and it was a complete gift when Christ gave it. So because Jesus Christ was thoroughly and completely, thoroughly and completely punished for our sins, the debt is paid in full. And God cannot hold us guilty again. He cannot hold us in debt again because the price has been paid. But that doesn't mean that we should pay no attention to sin. And it is the conviction of my heart that one of the reasons that we're in trouble today in the world and in the church and in our own personal lives is because we've not been paying attention to our sin. Now, for the true believer, repentance and confession is a way of life. If you want to study 1 John, it's one of the signs of true believers. They deal with sin. It's confession. We confess our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Well, he did that already when he saved us, but, but you know, we've got to deal with it on a daily basis. Trivializing sin 
uh, delighting in sin, covering sin, denying sin, making little of sin. All of those are the lifestyle of unbelievers. And we're living in a time when believers are doing the same thing. Wanting to fall on the grace of God, the fact that we've already been forgiven, to just ignore our sin. No, no, no. Because I am saved, because I love God's word, and because I love holiness, doesn't mean that I don't sin. Believers sin. And as long as I am on this side of heaven, I'm going to sin. I'm going to sin. So as I walk through the world, when the Holy Spirit nudges me to show me my sin, then I'm going to need to deal with that sin with confession and repentance immediately when he shows it to me. He said, be dealt with right then. So do Christians keep confessing sins? Look with me at a couple of scriptures. Turn, if you will, first of all, to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. This is a familiar account of Jesus with his disciples in the upper room, and they're sitting around the table. Now I'm going to read verses 4 and 5. John chapter 13, verses 4 and 5. I better begin in verse 3 so I can begin kind of at the beginning of the thought. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things to his hands and that he had come forth from God and was going back to God, Then during supper, he got up and laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself about. And then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Now they wore sandals and the roads were either dusty or muddy. They weren't paved. And so when there was a dinner, then the lowliest of the servants present would go around and wash everybody's feet and dry them off. Now, in this situation, nobody did that. So Jesus did. Jesus did it. And so the helping, the setting helps us understand two kinds of forgiveness. Watch it. Verse 6. And so he came to Simon Peter. And, said, and Peter said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus said to him, what I do, you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. And Peter said to him, you're not washing my feet. Uh-uh, never shall you wash my feet. And, Peter, and Jesus answered Peter and said, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. And Simon Peter then said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. I think he was saying, you wash anything you want to wash. And Jesus said to him, here it is. He who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean but not all of you, and he was referring to Judas. Now, here's the deal. Peter had taken an appropriate bath before he had come to dinner. But in his walk from wherever he took his bath 
to getting into the presence of Jesus, his feet had gotten dirty. Now here, here's what he's saying. Bathing illustrates the forgiveness of justification. And just like we talked about positional holiness and practical holiness, here's a picture of positional forgiveness and practical forgiveness. Those who are justified by God, those who are saved, are declared free from the penalty of sin forever. It is a gift. It is because of what Jesus did. So you appear before God as clean and righteous by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus. You are justified. You are declared not guilty, not guilty. But here's forgiveness number two. And here is this fatherly forgiveness of sanctification where we're learning in our brokenness as God nudges us to respond when God says, mm, uh-uh. when the Holy Spirit in us taps us. See, those who are justified need to be continually washed from the presence of sin and the power of sin. When we were saved, we were delivered from the penalty of sin. We have not yet been delivered from the power of sin and the presence of sin. And so that's something that we learn to deal with in our walk of, of sanctification, in sanctification. We don't need to be justified again. We need to be sanctified. We've been delivered from the penalty of sin, but we've not yet been delivered from the presence of sin and the power of sin, which won't happen until we get to heaven. So in the meantime, we've got to learn to deal with it. We've got to know what to do. We need to be, and I love the tenses of the verbs. I don't, <clears throat> don't have time and I'm not really prepared to go into them, but the tenses of some of these verbs in the New Testament is incredible. The word saved in the New Testament is in Three tenses. I am saved. Let's see, I have been saved. I am being saved and I shall be saved. My salvation is a continuous process that God works and I'm to work with him and cooperate with him as well. And so, you know, we, we are about the process of needing to be continually washed. It's like living in a bathtub. Over and over, we just, need to, we just need to be continually washed. Just a whole lot of times we need our feet washed. Did you ever do that when you were little? Did you, did you ever, um, had you ever been playing outside all day and maybe your mama brought you in, put you in the bathtub and washed you, and then you ate supper, but there was still a lot of daylight outside, so you went back outside. And when you came in the second time, she had to wash your feet and wash your face and wash your hands before she put you to bed. We need that spiritually. There's also a fascinating picture of this in the Old Testament tabernacle. I love a study of the Old Testament tabernacle, but beginning in Exodus 25, God gave Moses instructions on how he wanted a sanctuary built for himself so that he might dwell among his people. There would be a visible presence of God among his people in this sanctuary. Well, God gave instructions for the Ark of the Covenant and for the curtains and for the brazen altar and for the 
um, table of showbread and the priest's garments, the, and, and he gave instructions on how the priests are going to present offerings to God. Every detail is there. And so in Exodus chapter 30 and verse 18, God gave instructions for a laver, a laver. It was, and here's the layout. If you're, he gave them the dimensions of the tent. So they put this big tent around um, the tabernacle and then in the back of it, or as, as you walk into it, then there is another curtained off place. But there's one door. Guess why? Jesus is the door. There's one door. And so when, you, when the priest stepped into the tabernacle, the first thing that he encountered was the brazen altar. And that's where he would sacrifice animals for sin. This was the first blueprint of what Jesus was going to do. This tells us how we're saved. And so he would sacrifice an animal, the sin, make a sin offering on the brazen altar. Now the priest had to go into that next section every day, a place called the holy place, which is in the curtained off part. And so he had to go in there every day to minister to God. There was um, a lampstand in there, the golden lampstand that the Jews today call the menorah. Uh, there's a table of showbread and the... Um, table where you pray, the altar of incense, the altar of incense. And those were in that closed off place. And so he had to go in every day and take care of that stuff. He, you know, he had put incense in, kept everything clean and making sure that it was running properly. Now, just on the other side of that was the holy of holies. And that's where God dwelt. And that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. And he had it covered with the mercy seat and the cherubim standing over it like this. And God said, I'm going to dwell with you there. And that's why the, where the Shekinah glory came forward, came up out of that tent when the Jews, when, the, when they were walking in the wilderness and God was revealing himself and he would guide them by fire at night and by cloud in the daytime. The priest never went in there. And there was a thick curtain between the holy place and the holy of holies because they couldn't go in there. Now, only the high priest could go into the holy of holies one time a year. And he had to take blood with him and pour it out on the mercy seat. So here is God dwelling above the mercy seat was simply the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. And inside that Ark was the law. Aaron's rod that budded. Um, seems like there was something else. I'm getting off here that, on something I didn't prepare for recently. But it's in there. But in between the law and the presence of God was mercy. The mercy seat covered with blood. It's a blueprint for what Jesus was going to do. The high priest could only go in there once every year. It was the holy of holies. Get that. And so he would wear a bell on the hem of his garment and then tie a rope around his ankle so that if he died in there, they could drag him out. And they could tell by the bell if he was okay and still in there moving around or not or if they needed to get him out of there because they knew that in the presence of the holiness of God, if it wasn't handled properly, one would die. 
But every day a priest went into the holy place just outside that. And so in between, in between the brazen altar, which is where he made the sacrifice for sin and the holy place, there's this thing called a laver. It was filled with water. So after the priest made the sacrifice for sin at the brazen altar, and he was going to begin to walk into the presence of God, he had to stop at the laver and wash his hands and feet. Why? Because just walking through the world presents defilement for us. And so just walking through there, you know, he was liable to get dirty before he went into the presence of God. And no priest would ever enter the presence of God with any kind of uncleanness. He knew better. And just while we're there, he would walk into the holy place and every year one high priest would walk in to the Holy of Holies into the presence of God. Only he could go in and only he could go in once a year until Jesus died on the cross. And what does scripture tell us? That when he died, that veil, that thick curtain was split in two. Guess what? From top to bottom, God split it, opening the presence of the holiness of God to everyone who could approach it with the blood of Jesus. If you don't go into the presence of the holiness of God with the blood of Jesus, you are in serious trouble. We have to deal with sin on a daily basis, even though we've been declared forgiven. Now, there's one more example, and you know the verse, you know the passage. It's when Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Remember, his disciples had seen him pray a lot of times. They had seen his power in prayer. Um, they had seen what prayer could accomplish. And so they went to Jesus one day and said, hey, uh, would you teach us how to pray like that? And Jesus said, well, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father, born into the, as a child of God, our Father who art in heaven, ooh, hallowed be thy name. You know what hallowed means? It means holy. So the first thing Jesus said do when you start to pray is you identify and recognize and bow before the holiness of God. Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What is that? That is walking in brokenness where I'm willing to let him guide me, where I'm willing to do God's will in this, this earth, where I'm willing to let him lead, where I'm willing to bow before his will, do it his way in his time, the way he said do it. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me throw something else in here. We know that heaven is an incredibly wonderful place, so wonderful that we can't describe it. But there are those among us, there's maybe a part in all of our lives when we're afraid to do God's will because we're afraid it will hurt, it will be bad. Now, let me tell you something. 
Heaven is a wonderful place, and it is a place where God's will is done. That's a clue, Sherlock. So as we do God's will, it's going to be his thing. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. What is that? That's dependence on him. That's keeping our eyes on him moment by moment. Every day our eyes are set on him. But then he said, you will pray, forgive us our trespasses. Now he's saying this to the disciples. They were already believers. Forgive us our trespasses. And so what Jesus is saying, he says, whenever you pray, you acknowledge your sin. So it's not going to work for us to pretend we don't have any. Ooh, First John is strong about that. He says, you don't want to do that. You're a liar if you say you have no sin. And so Jesus says, when you come to me in prayer, then you're going to say, forgive us our trespasses. See, asking for forgiveness is a part of a disciple's prayer life. We know about confessing sins. We know about the word confessing, but confessing sin is not just telling God we did it. Uh, kind of... Um, that's our word today. When we confess something, we just say we did it. Well, that's not what confession is before God. Confessing is not just telling God we did it. I mean, face it, he already knows it. He knows we did it. What it is, is agreeing with God about it. It is agreeing with God about it. It is seeing that sin the way he sees it, and it's understanding that he hates it. Fear of the Lord is what? standing in awe of him and hating sin. And so we see that over and over again that God hates sin. But listen, confession is not enough. And this is something we're not hearing anything about much today in any ministry in, in God's church. The Bible is full of it. It needs to be joined by genuine repentance. Genuine repentance. Sadly, the concept of repentance has taken a back seat to all other things in our modern thought. We think if we can confess it, we can just go on. And if we do it again, we're going to confess it again and everything's going to be fine. Nope. Doesn't work that way. Repentance is the act of returning to the Lord. You see it all through the Old Testament. You see it through the New Testament. Returning to the Lord. And it's tied to the fact it begins with the changing of one's mind. Repentance is a changing of my mind about a sin, and then it is forsaking that sin because I change my mind about it, and I see that it's bad. I see that God hates it. I see how detrimental it is, and I'm going to turn away from that sin. It begins with a change of mind, and it always has to do with returning to the Lord, returning to the Lord. All through the Bible, there are calls to repent. In the New Testament, the word repent is given two verb tenses, two verb tenses. One of the verb tenses is the aorist tense. Now, mind you, I'm no Greek scholar. I'm just telling you what I know, okay, what I've learned. Aorist tense is a tense that has to do with an action that took place at one point in time. The other tense is a present tense, and it is continuous present. Keeps on being. Not just one point in time, but going on. Now listen to me, the word repent is used in both of those tenses in the New Testament. 
one repents one point in time at the same time that he or she is saved. You change your mind about sin. You change your mind about God ruling your life. You change your mind about not wanting to live life your own way. And so the person who is saved changes his mind about those things and in faith surrenders to the Lord Jesus Christ. But then once that happens at one point in time, it starts a process of sanctification where we're going to repent over and over and over again, continuous present tense. And so we don't repent over and over again to be resaved. We're just seeing and responding more and more to how God is turning our lives around to be more and more like Jesus, to think more and more holy thoughts, to live out more and more uh, the holiness of the Lord more fully. We're working with him in sanctification to walk out that which he has already put into us. And so as God works in our hearts, our actions become outward expressions of our repentant, changed heart. We act out of and speak out of what is in our hearts. Listen, when God washes us, he doesn't just wash the outside of the cup. He deals with the heart, and that's why we're changed. He's given us a new heart. Yesterday, I was looking at the ceiling fan on my back porch. Um, I've left it turned on pretty much for most of the summer, um, just slowly running, just sitting up there spinning, doing what fans do. It behaved. It worked well. No problems with the fan, just spinning, and it kept good about keeping bugs off the porch, but it's also good when you get out and get hot, you just go sit down and you feel the flow of air. So that fan had been just spinning and turning now for two, three months. And it's gotten cooler the last couple of days, and so I turned it off. And when I turned it off, the front edge of the blades of the fan in the direct direction that it was moving had collected a black residue. Where'd that come from? It's just in the air. It's in the air we breathe. It's in the air we walk through. It's in the directions we take. And so every place, as it turned and turned continuously because I never stopped it to clean it, now it needs a major cleaning because all this black stuff's collected on those white blades. That's what happens to us as we move through life. Just passing through the world, we're going to get contaminated just by moving forward because we live in a dirty place. It is a spiritually dirty place. So we have all kinds of sins, and, and I'm thinking this is probably what we're going to talk about next week in part three of What About Sin? But we have what the Bible calls presumptuous sins. We have secret sins. We have accidental sins or trapdoor sins. They're just there. Because in this humanness, now let's track through our series from lesson one on brokenness. Think, think through it. In brokenness, I'm giving my self-will over to God's will. 
I'm having a relationship with him like a rider has with a racehorse that has been broken, that has been trained. And that horse, we're the horse, God's the rider, at his every nudge, at his every communication, we're going to respond. And so as I begin to do that, I'm walking in the fear of the Lord because as I'm doing that, what am I doing? My, I'm standing in awe of him. And the more I stand in awe of him, I'm hating sin more and more because it messes up. It messes up my communication with him. It messes up the power in my life. It messes up the power in my prayer life. And so I just walk in the fear of the Lord and, and I stand in awe of him and I hate sin. And then I see his holiness. I'm confronted with his holiness. Maybe I've never thought about it that much before. But when I see his holiness, I see how sin mars what God is wanting to do in the world what God wanted to do in the world to start with. And so when I stand in his holiness, I see my own sin. We saw Isaiah do it in our last lesson when he, he saw the Lord and his train filled the temple and they were saying, holy, holy, holy. And when Isaiah saw him, he said, oh my goodness, I am unclean and I dwell amongst the people who are unclean. And so then, you know, I'm going to do the same thing. I'm going to confess my sin. When God shows me that sin, I'm going to confess it. I'm going to agree with what God says about it. I'm going to ask him to give me the fear of the Lord in that area of my life. If there's a sin I still like, and there will be some, if there's a sin I'm still pretty comfortable with, then I need to ask the Lord to give me the fear of the Lord in that area of my life so that I will begin to hate that sin. And then what am I going to do? I'm going to repent of it. I'm going to repent of it. That doesn't say that I'm not going to mess up and do it again sometime, but the attitude of my heart is going to be to walk in repentance when I allow Jesus to become central so that he can change me. Listen, we don't want unconfessed sin, undealt with sins to accumulate in our lives. We don't want that. The reason is that unconfessed sins become a platform by which we get bound by the enemy. He uses them. He uses them to take over territory in our lives, to build strongholds. He uses them. And so we want to deal with sin on a regular basis, on a daily basis. And so when Satan gets hold of that, he's going to badger you and he's going to have a foothold around your life because of your unconfessed sin. We need to deal with it immediately. We need to get before the Lord and say, show me my heart the way you see it, show me what sin you want me to deal with. What sin am I comfortable with that I don't recognize as sin anymore? What do I need to do? We don't need to carry the burden of sins. Last week when we looked at Isaiah 6, where Isaiah saw the Lord and he immediately saw his own blemishes and his unclean lips immediately came to his mind. In closing today, I want you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. In Isaiah chapter 1, 
down in verse 18. God invites his people to talk with him, to dialogue, to reason with him. He's saying, now come here and let's talk about this. So the Lord is, if you look at Israel and what's going on in the message of Isaiah, what you see is that the Lord is throwing out a challenge to those who believe in Christian principles but don't practice them. And so the Lord says that their sin is scarlet and crimson. Look at verse 18. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool, pure snow white wool. Now, the Lord calls this kind of sin of knowing what to do and not doing it, talking about it, appreciating it, and not doing it, scarlet sins and crimson sins. What in the world does that mean? Well, scarlet is usually a very bright red. And he says that he will take those bright red sins and make them white as snow. But crimson is a really interesting word. This word crimson is a deep, dark red. It was the custom to double dye cloth. You know, back then they had to dye their own cloth and it was the custom to double dye cloth to get it to be this exceptionally deep, crimson, and when it was dyed that way, when they double dyed it, it was impossible to change. But here's something else. In the Hebrew, the root word that is associated with this crimson is maggot. So they would have to take maggots that have to get a piece of cloth and to get it to be that dark of a red, they would have to get it from a devouring worm. Now, what's God saying here? Even if they are red like crimson, even if our sin is that bad, God can and will cleanse crimson sins. Only a holy God, a loving God, a merciful God, a gracious God can wash double-dyed sinners as clean as pure white snow and give him his impeccable holiness. Let's be about the business of dealing with our sin. We so desperately need revival in our church, in the church, in the world. We need healing in our land. God, we're not waiting for God. God is waiting for us. And it's going to start with what we think of as our little things. But the little things, the things we think are as little things, uh-uh. A sin is a sin. Let's pray. 
Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting.